Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. What you're about to hear is a true story about a series of crimes committed against young women. This is not suitable for children and listener discretion is strongly advised. In this episode, you'll learn about two men who earned the name the Toolbox Killers. Their crimes against young women are so horrendous that even the FBI uses their case to desensitize new agents to the reality of torture and murder. First, I just want to personally say that I struggled with this episode. Did I really want to get into the details of what happened to these poor girls? I mean, it was hard enough to read about it, but could I talk about it? The more I sat with it, I realized that as horrible as it was, it was important to not hide from the fact that people like this do exist. What you'll hear sounds like a fictionalized movie script, but it's real. It's all very, very real. Whenever you hear someone say that there is evil in the world, you are about to hear what this means. In 1978, two men sat together in the California Men's Reformatory Prison and discussed plans for what they wanted to do once they were both released. The plan would set in motion a series of events in the summer of 1979 that would put fear into the hearts of families in and around Los Angeles, California. On the evening of June 24th, 1979, 16-year-old Lucinda, known as Cindy Schaefer, had been reported missing after she had not arrived home at her grandparents' house. Now, this is where she had been living. She had just moved there from a different state and wanted to spend her senior year in California, so she moved in with her grandparents. She had just attended a church meeting at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Redondo Beach and was walking home. She only had two blocks to go before arriving at her grandparents' house. When she didn't arrive home that night, her grandmother called the Torrance Police Department and reported her missing. Her grandmother, desperate to locate her, even placed an ad in the Los Angeles Weekly that said, quote, Cindy Schaefer, where are you? Call your grandma. On July 8th of 1979, two weeks after Cindy went missing, 18-year-old Andrea Hall was hitchhiking along Pacific Coast Highway near Manhattan Beach. She had recently moved to California from Ohio to start a new life. Her and her family, they had a great relationship. Andrea would send birthday cards and Mother's Day cards and even made it a habit of phoning them on a consistent basis. When Andrea wasn't heard from after some time, she too was reported missing. On September 3rd, 1979, 13-year-old Leah Lamp and her cousin, 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam, had asked permission to take the bus to the beach, which was granted. When they didn't return home that night, their families reported them missing. 
October 14th, 1979. It has now been four months, and Cindy has still not been found. Torrance police don't know what happened. They sent bulletins to police departments in California, Mexico, New Mexico, and even Arizona. They even went so far as to enlist the help of a psychic, all with no results. With no witnesses and no leads, Cindy's case, along with Andrea's, Leah's, and Jackie's, all eventually went cold. On November 1st, 1979, the body of a young woman was found by a jogger. The body had been found lying in an ivy bed in suburban Sunland, California. Her body had been battered and mutilated, and her hands and feet were still bound. The body was later identified as that of 16-year-old Shirley, also known as Lynette, Ledford. After an autopsy, it was determined that Lynette had been sexually assaulted and had suffered blunt force trauma to her face, head, breasts, and left elbow. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, but she had ultimately died of strangulation. After three weeks of investigation, the police were nowhere close to finding out who killed this young woman. They were at a loss. All that they had at this point was one body and at least four other missing women. They had no witnesses, and to make matters even more complicated, at the time, there were various serial killers operating in and around the Los Angeles area. The Zodiac Killer was still active, as was the Hillside Strangler, the Sunset Strip Killer, and even one known as the Vampire of Sacramento. A few days after Lynette's body was found, a man named Joseph Jackson visited a friend of his named Roy Norris at Norris's apartment. Norris wanted to talk to him about something. Jackson and Norris had originally met at the Atascadero State Mental Hospital, where they had both been sent because they were both considered mentally disordered sex offenders. They were subsequently both released, and each man went on his own way. It didn't take long for both of them to again be arrested for attacking women. Because of these separate events, they were both sent to the California Men's Colony, also known as CMC, in San Luis Obispo, where they had again met up with each other. Norris had already been there a while when Jackson showed up. While there, Norris had met another guy by the name of Lawrence, also known as Larry, Bittaker. The three of them, Jackson, Norris, and Bittaker, got to know one another while they were at CMC. After they had all been released, they continued to keep in touch. It wasn't unusual at all for Jackson to visit Norris. The night that Jackson headed to Norris's place, Norris started telling Jackson about what he and Bittaker had been up to the previous months. Quote, he started talking about he and Larry needing a third person, someone to drive their van, which they called Murder Mac, and to keep track of the police. He just said that he and Larry had some plans, and he thinks I would like the plans, unquote. Norris mentioned to Jackson that he did feel guilty 
about some of the things that they had been doing. Jackson then asked him what he was talking about, and according to Jackson, he heard, quote, more than he expected. And that's when he started telling me about the kidnaps and the rapes and the murders. Norris, however, did not mention anything about torturing the teenagers. Norris then went and showed Jackson pictures of women and told him that he and Bittaker had even tape-recorded the acts. Norris, who's still feeling guilty at this point, said, quote, Victims one in five were full of life and laughter, and that's one reason why they shouldn't deserve to die. Jackson asked Norris why he killed them. He said, quote, This way him and Larry could come home and sleep at night and not have to be worrying about police busting them or arresting them. Later that night, Jackson and Norris went out for coffee, and Norris started pointing out homes of potential victims in the area. These were places that Norris had watched and waited around. He further talked about watching young girls. Jackson said that they talked about him wanting to be more selective. You know, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it good. When Jackson and Norris finally parted ways... Jackson started to think about what he'd been told. It also now started to make sense as to why Bittaker, when he was around Jackson, started to show an interest in Jackson's two daughters, who were aged 13 and 17 at the time. Jackson is quoted as saying, quote, As far as I was aware of at the time, I was the only one that knew. And if Larry and Roy is out there killing people... If I didn't become a part of it, there's no reason for him not to kill me. Jackson then decided to go to his lawyer, and then they both went to the Los Angeles police. He told the story over and over, quote, and nobody believed it. Nobody. Investigators from the Los Angeles Police Department, the Sheriff's Department, the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and the Irvine Police Department, more than a dozen in all, all heard the story that Jackson was telling them. Still, nobody believed him. Quote, maybe because of my past record or something, nobody believed it. Jackson further said, quote, if Roy had told me that he was raping, I never would have went to the cops. If he would have told me he was doing armed robberies or burglaries, I never would have went to the cops. I never did go to the cops when he was buying and selling drugs. I like to think that he told me that so that I would go to the police. What upset Jackson so much was that others that both Norris and Bittaker knew actually had been shown the pictures and they had listened to the tape recordings of screaming women and they had done nothing. Murder is something that Jackson just couldn't handle. When Norris asked to visit with Jackson, it was just five days after Norris had strangled Lynette. So let's pause here for a second. Here we have someone who has gone to his attorney and said, hey, I learned this information and I think we should tell someone. This is on November 14th and 15th of 1979. This is just a few days since Lynette's body has been discovered. Police department after police department wouldn't believe him. The fact is the police had caught a break in the case, but they didn't even know it was a break because nobody was listening. 
Eventually, the Los Angeles police did tell Hermosa Beach detective Paul Bynum about the story that Jackson was telling. Bynum heard the stories for himself the next day and decided to check on some small pieces of information. What he discovered was that what Jackson was telling him did in fact match reports on file of several teenage girls who had been reported missing over the previous five months. The other fact that he discovered was that just a month before, they had received a report from a woman who said she'd been abducted and raped inside of a van. The woman was then visited by detectives, and the detectives showed her some mugshots. She immediately picked out Norris and Bittiger from the photos. Once they were identified, the Hermosa Beach Police Department put Norris under surveillance. Within a few days, he was caught dealing marijuana. Norris, he was arrested that same day for a parole violation. Next, they went to Bittaker's residence at the Burbank Motel where he was living and arrested him for the rape. Within Bittaker's apartment, they found him in possession of drugs, and so he too was held for a parole violation. Bittaker's van was then impounded. While the woman was able to pick out the two from the mugshots, she couldn't be 100% sure when she viewed them in a physical lineup. So unfortunately, this case had to be dropped. However, maybe it was fortuitous, since both Norris and Bittaker were already in violation of parole, they remained in jail. After Norris's arrest, the police searched a car that he owned personally and found several photographs of young women. Police also searched Bittaker's apartment and found several Polaroid photographs there, some of them which seemed to show 13-year-old Leah and 15-year-old Jackie, both of whom had been reported missing earlier that year. They also found several bottles of various acidic materials that they later learned would be used on the men's next victim. Between the van, Bittaker's residence, and Norris's vehicle, they found over 500 photographs of young women. Inside the van, they also found a sledgehammer, a plastic bag full of lead weights, a book about how to find police radio frequencies, two necklaces, and a tape recording. The tape was of a young woman in obvious pain, screaming and pleading for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. Lynette Ledford's mother later identified the voice on the tape as that of her daughter. At this point, Norris wants to talk. So Detective Bynum calls Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay and says that Norris wanted to talk to him about some murders and he was willing to plead to second-degree murder. Norris was then interviewed for three hours. His manner was described as being, quote, casual and unconcerned. Norris said that he and Bittaker used to drive around places like the Pacific Coast Highway, randomly approaching girls they found attractive and offering them rides, taking their pictures, or giving them marijuana. 
Most of the women rejected whatever ruse they were using, although four girls had accepted lifts from the two, and these girls had been murdered, with their fifth victim, the first one, being grabbed by force. This one would be Cindy Schaefer. They had come up with a plan while at the California Men's Reformatory to kidnap, rape, and then murder teenage girls ranging from ages 12 to 18. After they were released from California Men's Reformatory, they both worked in the Los Angeles area. They met up at a bar and they began discussing the plan that they had talked about in prison. Bittaker went out and bought a GMC Vandura van. It, it looks much like a cargo van. They put a bed inside the van, a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks, some clothing and some tools that went under the bed. They began to test their plan by what they did is they drove around the Los Angeles area. They offered women rides and they took pictures with them. They then located a secluded area where they wanted to take their victims. This area was located on a remote fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains, and it's north of the city of Glendora. The fire road, it was gated and it had a lock on it. So what Bittaker did is he broke the lock and replaced it with his own. As they're driving along in the LA area, Norris had first noticed Cindy walking down the street after she had left a meeting at the Redondo Beach St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. They stopped and tried to get her into the van by offering her pot and a ride home. She said no and continued to walk down the street. So what they decided to do is they drove ahead of her along the same route that she was taking and they parked near a driveway. As she got closer, Norris got out of the van and opened up the sliding door. He leaned into the van and pretended to be fixing something inside. After Cindy walked by, Norris then ran up behind her, grabbed her, put his hand over her mouth, and pulled her into the van. The men then turned up the radio as loud as it could go in order to drown out Cindy's screams. While Bittaker drove toward the San Gabriel Mountains, which was nearly an hour away, Norris taped up Cindy's wrists and ankles, and then he gagged her. Once at their location, they unlocked the gate that gave access to this fire road that they had picked out earlier, and then they drove to the spot that they had picked out. They took off all of her clothes and told her that she was going to be raped. The men then discussed who was going to rape Cindy first. Norris was the first to rape Cindy while Bittaker, quote, took a walk. When he returned, it was Bittaker's turn. Throughout the night, they took turns raping Cindy over and over. They then discussed what to do with Cindy. It is said that they talked about what to do with her for about 90 minutes. All the while, Cindy is listening to this. Bittaker finally said that they, they were just going to have to kill her. Knowing what was about to happen to her, Cindy asked for just a second to pray. But Bittaker grabbed her from behind and picked her up so that her feet couldn't reach the ground. Norris then put his hands around her neck and began to squeeze as hard as he could. 
According to the Gadsden Times, after about 45 seconds, Norris finally looked Cindy in the face and was, quote, disturbed by the look in her eyes. He let go of her and ran to the front of the van and threw up. Bittaker then took over, and what he did is he put a wire hanger around Cindy's neck. He then grabbed some vice grips and kept turning the hanger until it finally suffocated Cindy. He then told Norris, quote, strangling someone is harder than it looks on TV. They then drove to a steep hillside and threw Cindy's body off of it. Bittaker said, quote, don't worry, the animals will eat her up so there won't be any proof left. Two weeks after the murder of Cindy, Norris and Bittaker came across 18-year-old Andrea Hall, who was hitchhiking along Pacific Coast Highway near Manhattan Beach. Bittaker told Norris to hide in the back of the van so that it would only look like one person was in the vehicle. Norris then went and hid under the bed, which happened to have a green bedspread hanging off of it. After Andrea got into the van, Bittaker told her that there were cold drinks in the cooler in the back. As she walked towards the cooler, Norris peeked out from behind the bedspread. When Andrea saw him, she started to scream and ran to get out of the van, but Norris grabbed her. After a struggle, Norris bound Andrea's wrists and ankles as they had done with Cindy and then put a gag in her mouth. Again, they turned up the radio and headed towards the San Gabriel Mountains. Bittaker then said to Norris, since you were the first last time, I want to be first this time. Andrea was raped twice by Bittaker and once by Norris. Bittaker decided he wanted to take some photos of Andrea as she was being raped. So he pulled out a Polaroid camera and started snapping pictures. At one point, Bittaker thought that he saw some headlights in the distance. So he covered Andrea's mouth and pulled her into some nearby brush as Norris took the van to see if he could go find the source. When he returned, unable to find out where this these lights were coming from, they moved to a different location. Here, Bittaker forced Andrea to walk up a hill completely naked, and then made her perform oral sex on him as he continued to take pictures. He even ordered Andrea to pose for some of these photos. While Bittaker and Andrea were on the hill, Norris decided to drive to a nearby store and get some more alcohol. When he got back, Bittaker was alone. He's all by himself. He then showed Norris his most recent photos. The pictures showed Andrea in a state of abject terror. He said to Norris, quote, This is when I told her I was going to kill her, but that I would listen to any reasons why I shouldn't. Bittaker then drove an ice pick through Andrea's ear to her brain. He then manually strangled her. He then threw Andrea's body over a cliff not far from Cindy. Two months later, on September 3rd, 1979, 13-year-old Leah Lamp and 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam were at a bus stop waiting to go to Redondo Beach. Norris and Bittaker noticed them waiting, and when the men stopped and asked if they wanted a ride, they accepted. 
they again turned up the radio and started driving toward the mountains. As they drove, though, the girls noticed they weren't headed towards the beach. They asked where they were going, and Norris and Bittaker, they started coming up with all kinds of excuses, none of which the girls believed. When the girls started screaming for them to stop, Norris took a bag filled with lead weights and hit Leah over the head, knocking her out. He then struggled with Jackie, eventually taping her hands and ankles and gagging her. They then drove the girls into the San Gabriel Mountains. The girls were kept captive for two days. During this time, they were both kept bound and gagged, except when they were being sexually or physically abused. On one occasion, as the physical abuse was happening, Bittaker stabbed Jackie in the breasts with an ice pick and then used vice grips to tear off part of one nipple. Bittaker at one point grabbed Leah and walked her to a nearby hill where he made her pose for pornographic pictures before returning her to the van. He then asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Jackie, both in the nude and fully clothed. After two days of abuse and torture, the girls were murdered. Jackie was stabbed in each ear with an ice pick and then strangled. Leah, she tried to escape, but she was hit over the head with a sledgehammer. Bittaker then tried to strangle her while Norris continued to hit her on the head with the sledgehammer. The girls' bodies were then thrown over an embankment. On October 31st, 1979, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford was just coming home from a Halloween party after fighting with her boyfriend, and she was hitchhiking outside of a gas station in the San Fernando Valley. Bittaker and Norris saw her and pulled over to offer her a ride, which she accepted. Now, investigators believe that she went ahead and agreed to the ride because she recognized Bittaker from a restaurant where Lynette had a part-time job. Lynette opened the passenger door and got into the passenger seat. Once inside the van, she was offered marijuana but declined it. Bittaker decided he didn't want to make the long drive to the mountains, so he instead drove to a secluded dirt road. He stopped pulled a knife on Lynette, and drug her into the back of the van so forcefully that it knocked over Norris. He then told Norris to just drive. Norris headed to the freeway and, as was their usual M.O., turned up the radio to drown out any screams. After a few moments, Bittaker went up front, turned down the radio, and grabbed the tape recorder. During the trial... Norris said that he remembered hearing screams, constant screams from the back of the van as he drove. Norris just drove around aimlessly for about an hour while Bittaker raped Lynette in the back of the van, recording most of it. Bittaker told Lynette to scream as loud as she could. When she did what she was told, he began to make fun of her, saying, What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? While he's saying this, he's punching her breasts, he's hitting her with a hammer, torturing her with pliers, raping her, and then sodomizing her. 
The men then switched places, and Norris again turned on the tape recorder. He told Lynette to, quote, go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. He then took a sledgehammer and hit Lynette on the left elbow. Now screaming at a very high pitch, Norris told her to keep it up until he told her to stop. He hit Lynette 25 times with the sledgehammer on the same elbow while asking her, what are you sniveling about? After two hours of this torture, Bittaker told Norris that this time Norris should kill her because Bittaker had killed everyone else. Norris agreed and took a wire hanger, as Bittaker had done before, placed it around her neck, and then used pliers to tighten the noose. Bittaker decided that instead of throwing the body somewhere in the mountains, they should just toss her body on a random lawn because he wanted to see how the media would react. They drove to a randomly selected house in Sunland where Norris threw Lynette's body on a front lawn. Norris continued talking, and he said that each time a girl was lured into the van, Bittaker's level of brutality increased. Their final victim, Lynette, she pleaded to be killed just so that her pain would stop. Norris also provided information that corroborated the evidence. Uh, For one, he knew that their first victim, Cindy, had left a meeting at the Presbyterian Church shortly before she was abducted, and that Cindy had lost one shoe as she had been drugged into Bittaker's van. After Norris's full confession, Los Angeles County Sheriff Peter Pitches gave a press conference. He said that the victims had been hurt in a, quote, sadistic and barbaric ways. He also said that both Bittaker and Norris would be charged with five counts of first-degree murder. Concerning the Polaroid pictures found in Bittaker and Norris's apartments and vehicles, Police had located 60 of the women that were in these photos, none of whom had been harmed. They also knew that 19 of the women in the photos were people who had been reported missing. They thought it was possible that these teenage girls and young women had been killed, but Pitches stressed that they had no proof that Bittaker and Norris had killed these other 19 women. Norris and Bittaker were then formally charged with the murders of the five girls. Within a month of being charged, Norris made a deal where he would testify against Bittaker in exchange for the prosecution not going for the death penalty. Part of this deal was to take investigators to the location of the bodies. Norris agreed to look for the girls he confessed helping kill. In each instance, Norris brought detectives to the locations where he and Bittaker had disposed of their victims. The investigators also partnered with the Sierra Madre search and rescue team, and Kay, the attorney Kay, had brought along a doctor. The doctor noticed a trail of bones and would say, quote, okay, there's a femur, here's an arm bone. A skull was missing the lower jaw, but did have the upper teeth. This turned out to be Leah Lamp after a dental record search. Another skull was found. It didn't have any teeth, but it did have an ice pick embedded near the ear canal. 
and this ended up being Jackie Gilliam. Although extensive searches were done, the bodies of Schaefer and Hall were never found. Bittaker was arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. When asked by the judge how he pleaded, Bittaker remained silent. He refused to answer any questions. The judge then entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. In May of 1980, now this is just a few months after Jackson first went to the police with his attorney and told him what he had learned, Norris was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison with the eligibility for parole in 2010. It wasn't until January of 1981 that Bittaker's trial formally began. Now, the star witness, as we all know, for the prosecution was Norris. He testified how he became acquainted with Bittaker in jail and how the pair had devised a plan to kidnap, rape, and kill teenage girls Norris then went through the details of each of the five murders. Two acquaintances of Bittaker said he showed them numerous pictures of himself and nude teenage girls. Quote, every time he left for a weekend, it seemed he had more pictures when he got back. An 18-year-old neighbor said she had become a close friend with Bittaker in late 1979 And he once showed her 15 or 20 pictures of himself and young nude girls while he played a tape. Quote, the girls on the tape were screaming and you could hear Larry in the background laughing. And he was laughing while he was playing the tape. The only thing Larry said is that they won't talk anymore. Another witness who had shared a cell with Bittaker said that he had talked in detail about the torture he had inflicted on Jackie and Lynette, saying that he had stabbed one of Jackie's breasts with an ice pick, which he then twisted. He had also, quote, pinched Jackie on the legs and breasts with a vice grip before tearing off part of one nipple. He further stated that Bittaker said that he'd, quote, hold on, Lynette's genitals and breasts with vice grips and attempted to beat her breasts back into her chest. Now, during Bittaker's trial, a 17-minute tape recording of Lynette being abused and tortured was the most damning evidence. The tape, which had been found inside of Bittaker's van, and Norris had said that Bittaker had played over and over as he drove Before it played, District Attorney Stephen Kay forewarned the jury, for those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out. Both the attendees of the trial and the jurors broke into tears as they listened to a 17-minute tape recording of a girl screaming while she was being tortured and raped. The girl screamed and begged for mercy from the two men who ordered her to perform sexual acts, who then beat her with a sledgehammer and mutilated her breasts with pliers to make her scream. A written transcript was provided to the jury and to Bittaker. 
Bittaker showed no emotion while he read along with the transcript as the tape was played. Over 100 people in the courtroom were there as this tape was broadcast over the speakers. Many members of the jury and the audience, they openly cried. Several audience members buried their heads in their hands, and some even rushed out of the courtroom before the tape even finished. After the judge called a recess, Stephen Kay walked out of the courtroom and, crying openly, said to the reporters, quote, Everybody who has heard that tape has had it affect their lives. I just picture those girls, how alone they were when they died. Observers that were just sitting in the room uh, were also interviewed during the recess. One of them said, I've heard screams before, but never those kinds of tortured screams. Another person said, quote, it was pure hell. Yet another one said, quote, I came to listen to the tape, but I had no idea. It was that horrifying. Lloyd Douglas, a jailhouse informant and uh, someone who testified actually against the freeway killer, took the stand against Bittaker. He said he made no deal for his testimony as he had with uh, the information that he gave against the freeway killer. Douglas and Bittaker, they happened to be in protective custody together in July and August of 1980. Douglas said, quote, I'm totally against what this guy did. Murder is the lightest thing he did to these girls. If anything, he did them a favor by putting them out of their misery. He, Douglas, testified that he and Bittaker had become close during freeway time in jail. Now, what this means is that for about an hour every other day, each inmate is allowed out of their cell for a walk in front of the other 25 cells in protective custody. The men talk and they exchange pornographic magazines, he said. Bittaker began bragging about his sexual exploits with young girls. Then the conversations turned to torture and murder as Bittaker told Douglas of the last hours of 13-year-old Leah, 15-year-old Jackie, and 16-year-old Lynette. In detail, he described how they were tortured and murdered with vice grips, an ice pick, and a sledgehammer. Leah was the only victim who wasn't raped because Bittaker and Norris, quote, found her overweight and unattractive. Bittaker said that Leah was shaking with fright, begging not to be raped. Quote, she died a virgin, he said. Douglas said that Bittaker also told him that he drove around playing the tape of Lynette on his van stereo. Quote, he said it was real funny. The harder he pulled with the vice grips on portions of her body, the louder she screamed, just like a siren. On February 5th, 1981, Bittaker testified on his own behalf. He denied knowing anything about the abduction and murder of Cindy and said he had paid Andrea to pose for photographs. He then said it was Norris who had walked Andrea into the mountains before coming back alone and telling Bittaker that he had told her to, quote, find her own way home. Regarding Jackie, he said that he offered Jackie money for sex and to pose for pictures and that the last time he'd seen the girls was at when they were alone with Norris in the van. Bittaker also testified that he had no idea that the five teenage girls were dead until he was arrested and Norris told him all about it. Norris told Bittaker that the girls were dead and then told Bittaker, 
quote, I'd better keep my nose out of it after the two appeared in a lineup. And if you remember, they had to appear in a lineup to be identified by the woman who was raped. Quote, it was rather shocking. I was totally unprepared to hear something like that. Can you hear my eyes rolling right now? Bittaker said that questioning by police about the murders left him, quote, quite upset mentally with anxiety and suicidal depression, so much so that he had to be put on tranquilizers. He didn't believe officers when they told him that Norris had confessed to the crimes and implicated Bittaker, even after the police played him a tape of Norris's confession. Bittaker said he had tapes and photos, including 40 or 50 pictures of Jackie, but buried these items in a cemetery somewhere. The judge ordered him to answer after attorney Stephen Kay had shown a map and looked to Bittaker and said to tell him to locate the burial spot. Bittaker turned to the judge and said, no, I won't. Bittaker's attorney asked him about the events that led up to the murder of Lynette on Halloween night. Bittaker said that he and Norris, while they were driving around in the van, picked up Lynette in Sunland. He said he gave her two $100 bills for some, quote, lightweight sex, and that she was still alive when he left her later. She was still with Norris. He further said that Lynette agreed to let him and Norris make a tape recording of what was said during the sex act. Bittaker said he spent five minutes in the back of the van with Lynette as Norris drove along the Golden State Freeway. Then Bittaker took over driving and Norris went into the back and was with her for about 20 minutes. Bittaker also said that after the, quote, partying or prostitution or whatever you want to call it, He went back to his motel in Burbank and Norris took the van and he drove off with Lynette. On February 9th of 1981, closing arguments begin. Stephen Kay told the jury that he was sorry that he was only asking for the death penalty, that he wished the law let him ask that Bittaker go through the same pain he had caused his victims. And personally, I agree with him. Attorney Kay referred to this case as, quote, one of the most shocking, brutal cases in the history of an American crime. Make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, a punishment of life imprisonment would be a total, complete victory for him. If the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, then when will it ever be? On February 17th of 1981, after three days of deliberation, Bittaker was indeed convicted on the murders, rape, and torture of the five teenage girls. The jury stared at Bittaker as the four men repeated guilty 26 times to all the felony counts. Within a few days, the jury would have to decide his fate, death penalty or not. Prior to the jury going into deliberation over the death penalty, Prosecutor Stephen Kay said, that the death penalty would totally repudiate Bittaker's brutal torture slayings of five teenage girls. Quote, if the death penalty isn't proper in this case, when will it ever be proper? The jury of seven women and five men took just one and a half hours to return the death penalty against Bittaker. It was the 17-minute tape of Lynette Ledford, 
that had the most effect on the jurors. Several of them said they had nightmares after hearing the tape. During this time, Bittaker showed no emotion. And on March 24, 1981, he was formally sentenced to death. The judge, thinking ahead, said that if his sentence was ever reverted to life in prison, his alternate sentence would be 199 years to immediately take effect. After all of the appeals, which eventually got as high as the U.S. Supreme Court, he was denied and sentenced to be executed on July 23, 1991. However, because there were so many appeals, and of course they kept being filed, his execution date kept being pushed back. On December 13th of 2019, Bittaker died while on death row at San Quentin. He was 79 years old. On February 24th, 2020, Norris died at the California Medical Facility where he had been moved only a week earlier from the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. The emotional aftermath of this is that prosecutor Stephen Kay, he was deeply affected by this case. He considered this case the worst case he had ever prosecuted or encountered, and he had previously worked on the Manson case. For over two years after the trial, he had nightmares where he'd be rushing to Bittaker's van to prevent harm from coming to the girls, but would, quote, always get there too late. Sadly, um, Paul Bynum, the chief investigator of the murders and the one who actually took the step to find these guys, he committed suicide in December of 1987. He was only 39 years old. His suicide note specifically mentioned the murders committed by Bittaker and Norris as haunting him and his fear that they'd be released from prison. Now, the tape itself The tape of Lynette's torture is now in the possession of the FBI Academy. It is used to train and desensitize FBI agents to the raw reality of torture and murder. Now, I have to tell you, this episode, this this took me nearly three weeks to complete, uh, partially because I kept being pulled into rabbit hole after rabbit hole of information. You know, what do I include? What's most important? Do I include all of the sordid details? There were times when I just had to walk away and go watch something like The Simpsons. Yes, I really did this just to get my head out of the funk. It definitely took its toll on me. Uh, Furthermore, uh, what infuriated me was that I discovered that prior to these horrendous crimes... Both Bittaker and Norris had extensive criminal histories, including rape. Bittaker had been arrested and released eight times before this crime. Norris had been arrested and released a total of three times. Time and time again, they were released by the justice system, and in many cases, with the blessing of psychologists. If they had been kept in prison, it is very possible that every last one of these girls would still be alive, and who knows how many are still even unaccounted for. I will also be the first to admit that I have not listened to the tape of Lynette. Um, I don't intend to. I just don't wish that on myself or anyone else. 
The transcripts are available online. Uh, those are hard enough to read. So if you feel the need to, to actually read through what happened to her, you'll be able to find that online. I really hope that I have done the girls justice in this episode by exposing their case and letting others know that horrible, evil people do exist in this world. Thank goodness they are few and far between, but it can never hurt to keep your guard up. To view a transcript of this episode, as well as all of the sources that were used um, in this particular episode, visit beachhouse34.com. To keep updated on upcoming episodes, follow Beach House 34 Podcast on Instagram. Thank you so much, so much for listening. You are truly, truly appreciated. Thank you.